Psalm 16. The passage will be up on the screen. And then if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Psalm 16, passage will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, please do pull that out and follow along with us. There are blue Bibles in the baskets. And some of the baskets in front of you, I would encourage you to pull one of those out if you don't have a Bible and follow along that way as well. And please do be praying. Uh, Ryan Harding has been on study leave on a sabbatical for the past seven weeks. Um, I know exactly how far along he is in that thing. He's coming back (laughs) July 5th. So mark that down on your calendar. But he's doing a a spiritual retreat to kind of end it. Um, And I would encourage you to be in prayer for him. And then Jay Hand, another one of our pastors, is on vacation right now getting rest. He needed rest so badly. I'm so glad he's away with his family. So please be praying for Ryan. Please be praying for Jay um, this week. Uh, Seriously, steadfastly. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord, as we continue our summer series in the Psalms, walking with God through various seasons of our lives, I do pray that you would give us particular um, amounts of honesty with ourselves this morning. So many of us are dealing with discontentment, which can and often does, ride beneath the surface and have very destructive effects. And so I pray that you would allow us to be open to what your word might say and speak into that circumstance this morning. And Lord, would you change us and transform us as we engage faithfully with your word. We love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Discontentment gets a lot more expensive with age. When you're two, discontentment is something like, well, if only I had that balloon over there in Publix, then I would be content. And then at 40, it's like, well, if only I had that BMW that my neighbor has, then I would be content. So at one point in your life, you needed approximately 85 cents 
to supposedly quell your discontentment, and now you need $85,000. Discontentment also gets more entrenched with age, and I would say destructive as well. There's a kind of bitter hardening that occurs over time that ends up trapping us in this prison of self-interest. And then in our, our discontentment, we might move kind of frenetically from job to job, never feeling entirely satisfied, always searching for our true calling. Or in our discontentment, we might become servants of our leisure, taking that trip of a lifetime for the 50th time as the length of our bucket list begins to rival the length of these Old Testament genealogies. Or, in our discontentments, we might do something like switch spouses, looking for someone to be that soulmate we deserve rather than trying to be that person for whoever it is that we originally married. Conversely, contentment is far less expensive, far more constructive, and frankly, far more compelling and interesting. Check out these journal entries from the surgeon and Methodist preacher Richard Williams while he and his missionary team were simultaneously starving to death and freezing to death as they waited on a delayed supply ship. Check this out. This was on Good Friday, April 18, 1851. Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls, and God we feel and know is here. And then on Wednesday, May 7th, Richard Williams wrote, Should anything prevent me from ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. And then shortly after these entries, Everybody on the team died of starvation and exposure because the ship came too late. People staying at all-inclusive resorts in the Caribbean don't even talk like this, right? Maybe you'll get on Google and, and, and leave some sort of positive review, a five-star review, but they're not saying on Google, you know, listen, at this resort, I was happy beyond description and wouldn't have changed places with any man living. People just don't talk like that. And yet here is Richard Williams leaving exactly this kind of review for Tierra del Fuego while his very life was getting snuffed out by the elements. That's a bit compelling, isn't it? Far more so than the estate of the person who's constantly flailing around for happiness and meaning, always giving fairly negative and cynical reports despite the appearance of having quite a lot of wonderful earthly things going for them. And goodness, if you are sitting here this morning in the, the throes of discontentment, this should give you a lot of hope. This should give you so much hope. As it turns out, true contentment is not contingent on changes to your external circumstances, which are often outside of your control. It turns out that we're actually not playing the contentment lottery here. So if we are experiencing a season of discontentment, and honestly, we all do at one point or another, how do we get the kind of contentment that Richard Williams experienced? 
that the psalmist, evidently David, experienced. How do we, how do we get that? We're not here to scold. You should be like David. How do we, how do we end up like that? This morning we're going to look at two options for dealing with discontentment. Two strategies, you might say. Number one, running. And then number two, reminding. Two strategies for dealing with discontentment in the psalm. Number one, running. And then number two, reminding. We'll start with that first option, running. Before we talk about running and get a touch negative, notice the foreshadowing in verse 1 concerning the posture of a content person, which includes language that's very prominent in other psalms as well. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The people of God realize that finding refuge will be a necessary part of life on this earth, and they look for that refuge in God alone. They realize that trying to completely avoid trials and suffering is a fool's errand, so the wiser plan is to find a shelter that will bear the weight of the storms. Case in point, King David in this psalm doesn't seem, sometimes he has a a specific set of circumstances on his mind, but as far as we can tell, he doesn't seem to have a specific threat in mind in this psalm as he appeals to the Lord for refuge. He simply knows that a pop-up storm is possible at any time, and he knows they're a matter of when, not if. Which reminds us of something very important about shelters. They do not keep the storms from coming. They provide protection in the midst of the storms. David and, and the Apostle Paul, etc., they really didn't spend much time asking God for no storms. They asked God for protection and deliverance because sin makes the world stormy. They knew they lived in Florida, so they asked for a roof over their heads. I'm jumping the gun a bit here, but I'm going to say this now and then I'm going to circle back to it in a bit. So many Christians are discontent because they do not know where they live. So many followers of Jesus are discontent because they do not know where they live. They are residents of Florida in the summer, but their minds are in Southern California, so their expectations are way off. Of course it's going to rain. Of course walking your dog is going to end up feeling like putting your clothes on right after you got out of a hot shower without drying off. That's where we live. Misplaced expectations lie at the root of a lot of discontentment. But why does the psalmist specifically turn to God for this refuge? Verse 2, because the psalmist acknowledges that the Lord is my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God can provide refuge for his people because he is not simply the Lord. He is their Lord, a claim that is confidently made by those who put their trust and hope in him. And as our Lord, he is all-powerful, and he is so good that nothing 
better exists. Powerful goodness is the essence, the essence of refuge, and that's what you have in God. Powerful goodness is the essence of refuge, and, and that's what you have in God. The character Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia series depicts this combination remarkably well. So do faithful parents, which explains why children tend to stay close by them in a crowd. If a threat emerges, the children want to be near their parents because they are powerful, at least comparatively, and they're good. And therefore, they can provide refuge. Now let's look at verses 3 through 4, which will finally bring us to this running that I promised we would get to. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. One of the marks of genuine faith and trust in God for refuge is genuine delight in like-minded people, a unique camaraderie that that manifests itself in a desire to spend time with and to encourage one another. Of course, this isn't merely delightful, it's, it's quite necessary if we're going to faithfully make our way through storms. God designed spiritual community in part to help us endure. For David, these saints would have been fellow Israelites whose lives indicated that they had genuinely set themselves before the Lord in faith. And for us today, the saints would be fellow believers who are bearing fruit in keeping with genuine repentance and trust in the Lord. And then the accompanying mark of genuine faith and trust in God for refuge is this. Here's what goes along with it. So you delight in like-minded people, and then conversely, you steadfastly refuse to participate in the practices of discontented people who are running after another God. Church, when we experience discontentment, we will be tempted to run after a God other than the one true God. For the Israelites, this most likely meant worshiping pagan deities, including the associated practices of of blood sacrifices and even putting the blood, sometimes substituted with wine, to their lips as a drink. I'm not particularly concerned about those practices for all of you, but I am concerned about things like money, sex, power, to give three prominent examples, none of which are inherently bad. Power is an interesting discussion that I don't have time to get into right now, but man, do they end up being really unfortunate and destructive gods. They promise so much, often a rather instantaneous antidote for discontentment. But then instead of controlling them, they end up controlling us because they become our gods. 
And then over time, they demand more and more, and they provide less and less, and we end up using and abusing other people instead of serving them, and so our sorrows multiply, the text says. Isn't it haunting that we'll be tempted to run, not walk, after these things, to hasten our way to them, even with enthusiasm and joy? That is the power of discontentment. So let's not think for one minute that we're simply beyond the reach of these kinds of tragic outcomes. 1 Corinthians 10:12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. One of the ways to guard ourselves against this kind of running is to learn how to detect discontentment, which can and often does lie beneath the surface, and therefore make us especially vulnerable to running headlong after false gods. Awareness issues are breeding grounds, metaphorically speaking, for, you might say, spiritual racing hounds who end up sprinting after rabbits that are both fake and always slightly out of reach. Here are some very classic signs of discontentment, which, which is always spiritual in nature. Classic signs of discontentment. Number one, intentional changes to your external circumstances, new job, new romantic interest, new place to live, etc., consistently fail to meet your expectations. You think if only this thing would change, then I'll be happy, and then it changes, and you're still not happy. Number two, you find yourself regularly thinking or making statements such as, if only I had fill in the blank, then I would be happy. Number three, third sign of discontentment, excessive self-focus. For example, you're, you're always in your own head. Perhaps you're, you're always thinking about how you're feeling, or, or maybe you dominate conversations, often with personal anecdotes rather than listening well, or maybe you relentlessly give negative personal reports when people ask you how you're doing. Number four, inability or refusal to rest, to Sabbath. For example, you're constantly busy and you're talking about how busy you are. Or even when you are resting, you're really just kind of tinkering, you're on your phone, you're kind of messing around with things. And speaking of phones, number five, I think heavy smartphone and media use are actually telltale signs of discontentment in our day. We're literally scrolling or searching for a sense of meaning or significance or pleasure. Church, let's sort through these signs to see if we get any hits because we just cannot deal with a problem that we're unaware of. And I'd guess that more of us than we realize are dealing with discontentment which means more of us than we might realize are actually in danger of running after false gods, or, might, or you might even be doing exactly that while maintaining a kind of Christian veneer or facade. And church, let's, let's remember where we live. 
we live in a world that remains beautiful in so many ways and yet is filled with so much trouble, so many storms. And it will remain that way until Jesus returns and consummates his ongoing mission to make all things new and bring his people into a new and holy city, Jerusalem. We cannot expect heaven on earth until Jesus brings it. And if we do expect heaven on earth, we're setting ourselves up to tarnish the beauty that is here now by expecting too much from it, and we're in for a world of disappointment and discontentment. Now, somewhat ironically, I hope this has made all of you discontent with both spiritual discontentment in the aforementioned ways of dealing with it. There is a good kind of discontentment, a holy discontentment, and it's a discontentment about being discontent in dealing with it like that. And that brings us, it pivots us toward the second option for dealing with discontentment, which is reminding. So first, running, and now a far better option, reminding. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Those stanzas, some of my favorite stanzas in the entire Bible, lie at the heart of this psalm. And to understand their beauty, we need to recall, believe it or not, we need to recall the land apportionments that the Lord ordained following Israel's conquest of Canaan. You can read all about this in the book of Joshua, specifically chapters 13 through 21. And there you will find that the Lord assigned very, I mean, very specific lots of land to the tribes of Israel as their inheritance. We might find these passages dry and technical and long. I mean, they go like this. And then the boundary passage, uh, passed, the boundary passed through so and such, and then it passed through so and such, and then it passed through so and such, and then it passed through so and such, and then here's a list of all of the cities contained within those boundaries. I mean, that's what it's like in Joshua chapter 13, through 21. But these details would have been quite fascinating and relevant to those actually receiving these allotments as well as to their descendants, right? Consider, for example, how much detail we tend to put into our wills, and we're just apportioning one estate, not an entire land. The asterisk here is that the tribe of Levi did not receive a land allotment because, and here I'm just quoting Joshua chapter 13, verse 33, because the Lord God of Israel himself was their inheritance. So instead of tending land, the Levites tended the systems that facilitated Israel's worship of Yahweh according to the law and thereby experience the Lord's presence in a profoundly unique way. 
The rest of Israel gave tithes to the Levites to make all of this possible since they didn't have a land allotment. Plus the Lord commanded the other tribes to give the Levites cities, totaling 48, and pasture lands so the Levites could have places to live and maintain their livestock. Knowing all of this, knowing this backstory, verse 5 feels awfully Levitical. Does it not? When you read it, the psalmist declares that the Lord himself is his portion and therefore holds his lot. And accordingly, verse 6, the lot lines of what belonged to the psalmist have fallen for him in pleasant places, and indeed he has a beautiful inheritance. Do you see the the second strategy for dealing with discontentment? Number one, we could frenetically run after other gods. That's one option. Or, number two, we can remind ourselves that the Lord is our portion and our inheritance. So, You can frenetically run after other gods, or we can remind ourselves that the Lord himself is our portion and our inheritance. We can remind ourselves that we have the Lord now, and we will have the Lord forever, and so we will always have exactly what we need. And check this out. The Lord who allocated Lot to the Israelites with the wisdom and the precision of an elite surgeon. That is the same Lord who uses the same wisdom and the same precision to allocate the circumstances of our lives. Folks who are making their way through the back hack, the, the, the back half of Joshua, you know, you'll do this this read through the Bible plan, then you'll get to the back half of Joshua and things, oof, they can start to slow down a little bit. They, you, you start to lose some devotional steam because these, these allocation lists really do start to be a lot after a while. And you can't pronounce anything either. But here's one way. I'm serious, this will preach. Here is one way that those lists can genuinely nourish your soul. Not making this up. As you read these lists, consider that God's care and provision for you right now is every bit as thoughtful and providential as his care for the Israelites after they conquered Canaan. Isn't that remarkable? The same level of care and precision God is applying to you today in your current circumstances. The boundary lines are in exactly the right places and they contain exactly the right city. You may not love your circumstances. You may even hate them on some level. But remember that God himself remains your portion at all times. And your circumstances are not random. They're not thoughtless or vindictive or any of that. In fact, some of the most difficult lots in life are apportioned to some of the most faithful people. People like Richard Williams. The easy answers to that are impossible to come by, but we can be certain that hard circumstances need not mean that God has somehow withdrawn his favor. 
enjoying God as our portion, it looks something like verses 7 and 8. And notice that all of this in 7 through 8 transcends our circumstances. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This brings us back to some of the main themes that came up in Psalm 1 a couple of Sundays ago. The psalmist is taking what he knows to be true about God, things that he has learned, such as by meditating day and night on God's law, and now he's He's instructing himself. He's preaching to himself. He's taking God's counsel, and he's preaching it to himself. And part of the sermon went like this. This God, who is my portion, is present with me. Self, this God who is my portion, he is present with me. He's at my right hand, and I therefore will not be shaken. Sometimes if you're a dad, sometimes, some people, sometimes if you're a dad, you give two of your kids popsicles because your third kid is at the grocery store with mom and you're trying to find a constructive way to pass the time. That's sometimes what you do. But then when the third kid gets home, she will find out about the popsicles, okay, even though you gave the other two kids, a speech powerful enough to win the Nobel Prize. And then, of course, you won't have any more popsicles because there are only two left. So dad humor kicks in, and then you, you tell the third kid, I'm sorry, I don't, I, I don't have another popsicle, but hey, you get me. And you think that's hilarious. But the kid doesn't because she wants a popsicle. Psalm 16 can feel like if your life circumstances are painful. Which is exactly why the psalmist instructs himself about God and his presence. The only way Psalm 16 works is if you really know who God is and if you're impressed with him. It only works if you believe that the dad is so wonderful that everything else, even popsicles, is nothing in comparison to knowing and having him. That's the only way all of this works. And this is why the Apostle Paul very famously wrote in Philippians chapter 4 that he had learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what was that secret? Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Not just knowing about him, really knowing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was so present with us that he became human and came to this very earth. This Christ who for our sake, was made to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Christ who, when he ascended to the Father, sent us the Holy Spirit to be present with us, even today, and guarantee our heavenly inheritance as co-heirs with Jesus. When you know this Christ, 
and when you know his presence with you via the Holy Spirit, then you can be content in all circumstances. And you don't have to be shaken. You don't have to be tossed into the spiritual blender even when you get bad news. And notice I didn't say that you'll never have the blender experience again. And Jesus is still there for you, even if you do. But there is a knowledge of Christ, church, that makes it possible to bear even the worst kinds of circumstances and news with genuine contentment. I want you to understand that that's in reach. Here's one of the primary ways that we can counsel ourselves toward contentment, even in the night. How can we counsel ourselves for a contentment, even, even in the night? We call that Christ is our portion. We call that Christ is our portion. At all times, we have exactly what we need. He's our portion salvifically. In Him, we become the righteousness of God so that when the Father looks at us, He sees Jesus. He's our portion eternally. Jesus has secured for us an eternity with God that will involve beauty and glory and goodness that surpasses human understanding. I just heard Max Lucado talk about how this in the journey was never promised to be easy, but the arrival will be worth it. And Christ is our portion presently. He's our portion presently. One of the major benefits being what we just learned about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My grace is sufficient for you. This is, this is the Lord talking to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Christ is your portion presently, and his power is made perfect, especially in our experiences of weakness. So accordingly, church, we can be joyful and blessed no matter what is going on around us. And how can we counsel one another? So we, we counsel ourselves, but we were just talking about how we live in community and parts so that we can endure, so how do we counsel each other? Certainly, we will use similar reminders, keeping in mind that sometimes we just need to, to sit with people when the storms are really raging. But let me add one more thing. Let's show people how God is at work in and present with them. Let's show each other how God is at work in and present with one another. One of the most powerful, yet, yet commonly, I would say, undiagnosed causes of our discontentment is overlooking evidence of God's work and presence in our lives. So when we see it, Let's tell each other about it. Say something. There's someone sitting around you that is discontent and struggling, in part because they do not see the evidence of the Lord's presence in their life, but you might. Tell them about it. Encourage them in Christ Jesus. So we counsel ourselves and we counsel one another. And after all the counseling, how do we respond? Then what? We give thanks 
and we rejoice. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Basically, you won't banish me from your presence. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Contentment brings gladness. It brings gladness. And when we articulate that gladness through thanksgiving and rejoicing, it actually fortifies our contentment even more. It might be the most wonderful cycle in the entire world. Contentment produces thanksgiving and joy, and then you articulate that thanksgiving and your joy privately, publicly, all the time, and then it circles back around and nourishes and fortifies your contentment, and on and on and on we go. So let me ask you this question. Are you short-circuiting that cycle? Are you short-circuiting that cycle? Or are you making it a habit to intentionally give thanks and to rejoice? And i got to say, a lot of things that I think Christians see to be sort of culturally weird these days are some of the most powerful engines for thanksgiving and rejoicing. Things like singing songs, not just on a Sunday morning, but singing songs in your home, singing songs with three other people. Some of the most content people I know, I can see them, I can hear them singing songs in their office sometimes. These are the kinds of habits that we need to reclaim if we want to experience the fruit of our contentment, which then circles back around and actually fortifies our experiences of that contentment. And I'll, I'll end with this. I don't know where all of you are spiritually. So I'll just say, is the Lord actually your portion? Is the Lord your portion? Have you <coughs> repented of your sin? Acknowledge the fact that you've been trying to be like God rather than submitting to God. Have you repented of that? Have you put your hope and your trust in Christ Jesus. The only experiences of contentment that you'll ever have will be fleeting unless Christ is your portion. This contentment will keep coming for you again and again and again. There is nothing in this world that you can run after that will give you ultimate contentment and gratitude and joy other than Christ. Would the Lord be your portion? Amen.